On today's episode of the podcast, I have on Ron Holloway. Ron was previously a special agent in the Diplomatic Security Service in the United States for over 20 years. And after a 20 plus year career, he had to retire from the job as a result of the stress which led to him becoming cognitively impaired and partially blind. After leaving the job, Ron then had to figure out what he wanted to do. And as a result, he became a performance coach and an author. During the podcast, we speak about things such as the job that he did, some of the tasks that he had to do during his time in the diplomatic security service, how he dealt with becoming ill, and also the suicide epidemic in law enforcement in the United States that doesn't get spoken about enough. Ron's new book, Anti-Fragile, is available now as an ebook on his website, which you can find in the description below. And please remember to subscribe, like this video, and share with anyone who may be interested. The goal of this podcast is to provide lessons and tips for people which are easy enough to understand and can help towards a high-performance life. So thank you for supporting, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Ron Holloway, welcome to the Quantum Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing good, brother. You know, you're, so, down, you're down in Australia. I thought you'd have a mullet. Oh, no. Uh, Brit- British through and through. I can't bring myself to have one yet. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, but yeah, so if you want to introduce yourself to everyone and let everyone know who you are, what you do, and what you have done. All right. Uh, yeah, my name is Ron Holloway. I, I don't like to just classify myself in one thing. I like to think I'm a educator and a human developer, and I empower people. Uh, particularly by teaching them things they can use, uh, inspirational speaker. And then there are modalities I use. So I, I write, I speak, and uh, I'm a certified executive coach, got my master's degree in it. Uh, I was in the government for 19 years, U.S. government, working for the U.S. Department of State. I was a special agent, uh, DSS special agent for the first 12 years okay. and uh, then I became ill, couldn't stay an agent and had to recreate myself. And I was cognitively impaired, emotionally jacked up, physically jacked up. And uh, I started on this journey that has led to anti-fragility and what I teach now. Okay, cool. So I want to start off with your earlier career. So not just the you know, working for the Department of State as special mm-hmm. agent, but also the Army. What led you down that path to fight for country? Okay. So I might have some inner psychopath. I'm not sure. <laughs> and as a, a fellow person of British descent, you might, uh, you might relate. Okay. But at age seven, I saw my first James Bond movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it was Octopussy, and they drove the the uh, Lotus into the water and it turned into a submarine. Yeah. It was Roger yep. Moore. And uh, there was also some stuff going on in my life. And I love James Bond. I want to be James Bond when I grow up. So some kids play building blocks and Legos. For me, it was toy guns. And back when toy guns looked real and uh, commando stuff and spy stuff and reading spy thrillers. And uh, I just stayed the path. So from age seven to age 17, that was what I wanted to do. Some kids want to be astronauts. I uh, wanted to kill KGB and Stasi agents for a living when I grew up. So maybe a little inner psychopath. <laughs> and I mean, I must have been the smartest kid ever because who doesn't want to be the guy that all the men want to be him and all the women want to be with him? <laughs> you have to have goals. Be, I had my priorities straight. Yeah, so... At, so I mean, it's funny, I took acting classes in high school for undercover. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've used some of that stuff. Um, I spoke German by the time I left high school. Worked out all the time, trained in martial arts. 17, we have something called the delayed entry program where you can sign an army contract during your junior year, our 11th year. And I signed up to go in intelligence and be a human intelligence collector, which is, you know, it's a junior spook in training and started off as an interrogator, ended up doing counterintelligence. I went to a strategic unit 
which was still active. This was, I went in in 92, the wall came down in 88, 89, and we were still active with Cold War stuff. I was in Germany uh, part of the time. I learned Hungarian in the army. I worked out of the embassy in Budapest, and you're probably too young to remember the conflict in the former Yugoslavia and the genocide. And I was, I, I've heard of it. <laughs> you've heard of it. Well, it's pretty nasty and man, parallels to what's going on today. Mm. But uh, I was one of the first NATO peacekeepers to go in, part of the implementation force of the Dayton Peace Accords. Wow. And uh, while I was in language school, I learned about State Department and the Diplomatic Security Service. I was 18 at the time, 19 in language school in DC. And uh, there was a special agent there who was also learning Hungarian and she sucked. And I realized if she could do it, I could do it. And uh, so after the army, I decided that was the route I was going to go. I was going to go CIA, but my CIA, your spouse has to be a US citizen as well. And I fell in love with a Japanese girl. Wow. In the State Department, she didn't have to be a US citizen. So it worked so, out for the better. Having worked with, with alongside the CIA and other agencies, I'm glad I went the route I did. So your first deployment, that was Germany then? Yeah, that was my first yeah. assignment, yeah, after training. So how many deployments did you do with the army? With the army, I did, I went to former Yugoslavia twice. Okay. And so, because as a Hungarian speaker, I was on a counterintelligence force protection team that covered Southern Hungary. We had our base of operations out of Hungary, all of our logistics. And then we made sure nobody was spying on us or plotting terrorist threats or anything like that. So obviously when you're a, you're a younger, like 20, 18 to 20, doing things like that where, you know, you're working long hours, you doing all sorts for ridiculous amount of time. It's not much of a problem, but I feel like as you get older and older, you need to have balance. And obviously there isn't any, there isn't any balance with a, a job like that. So was that what took you then to work for the department of state or was that just like, it was it something else completely? Actually department of state was worse. Really? Uh, yeah. We, I mean, it's funny to say that DSS diplomatic security service is a cult. In some ways, that's how we are. The uh, FBI is the same way. It's like who's important and our hallway reputation and what assignments we have. Uh, we get wrapped up in. I lived my job. I missed lots of holidays, lots of wedding anniversaries, birthdays of my kids, all that. Because I was always on call 24 hours. So and then I specialized in major events, so Olympics and uh, FIFA World Cups. And those would keep me away for long periods of time, just working 16 hours a day. And that's how I ended up getting sick. So the Diplomatic Security Service, for those who don't know, can you explain what it is? Mm -hmm. So first of all, everybody knows about the FBI, right? Yeah. And maybe you know about the DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, all that. So the truth is every federal agency has its own special agents. And we actually have the same job code in the government service, civil service. However, we have different functions. So for instance, used to be US Secret Service was part of Department of Treasury and they investigated counterfeiting and credit card stuff. And then they also did protection for heads of state. So presidents and visiting presidents. FBI does investigations, Federal Bureau of Investigations, those special agents focus primarily in domestic investigations. Our jurisdiction or our function was protecting everything that has to do with diplomacy. So spies trying to infiltrate the State Department. So we have a counterintelligence function. Uh, we're also deputized U.S. Marshals. So we can go and do fugitive returns overseas. Uh, we have our own investigative side. So one is protective intelligence investigations. My first office where we investigate threats that pop up, either a threat against a protectee or a threat against an embassy. It's kind of a 
kind of proactive intelligence for security. And uh, what happened? We do everything. We're like CIA, FBI, and oh, we protect passports. So yeah. the passport is a gateway document that can get you any document in the United States. So any crime that is committed in conjunction with the use of a U.S. passport, we can pursue. Okay. And we have a counterterrorism counter part where we're on different counterterrorism teams with other agencies. So what kind of people would you be dealing with in this job? In this job? Well, for me in particular, so people kind of specialize in different things. It's hard to do. We tend to be jacks of all trades. I was always a protection guy. So we protect all visiting diplomats to the United States. Not, so some is just we do security liaison with the people who are in a, the Japanese embassy in D.C. So we run all those foreign missions protection and, and interact with them. But also when the Dalai Lama comes to the United States, we protect him. When the British royals come to the United States, they're not heads of state. We protect them. Uh, we protected Nelson Mandela. Uh, and my particular thing that I really focused in on was protection of U.S. Olympic athletes, fans, and uh, the national soccer team. So I, I mostly worked with the U.S. men's team. And I was embedded with them in 2010, 2009 at the Confederations Cup. And then I ran government operations for the World Cup in 2010 out of Pretoria at the consulate there. Let me see. Let me see. Okay. It's, it's really interesting because it's like you say there, you worked with the US men's team. So if you're working a World Cup, mm -hmm. you're away for probably over a month. You're probably there before they get there and they're there after they leave. Yeah. So pretty much every event I went to, I was there two and a half months total wow and so in 2010 i actually bumped from the 2010 winter olympics in vancouver and then they had some issues so they sent me early to south africa for the world cup and i was so you, i was away from my family that whole time how long was that for south africa i was there about two and a half months and vancouver before that i think vancouver i was only there for a month I wasn't the lead guy out of major events. Plus, we have people typically who live there for a couple of years before the event working on things. I was in the headquarters element of major events. So I would, I was a subject matter expert. I'd go in and help in the field. I didn't necessarily live there. However, uh, the seniors really liked the work I did in South Africa. So my follow on two year assignment. It was going to be London for the 2012 Olympics. And in between leaving South Africa and going there, I became very ill. Because I was going to say that three and a half months to be away, not just you know from home, but from family, from kids, mm -hmm. that must take a toll on not just you physically, but mentally. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, yeah, we're all type A's. Uh, our work is life or death in some way, shape, or form. You know, for the one of a nail, a kingdom was lost. And if you ever heard that, yeah, uh, I heard that. so we're all like that. So we're all on edge. And then we also have this promotion assignment system that puts us in competition with each other, which makes it even worse. But yeah, it's very stressful. I would say that being a DSS agent is the most stressful of any U.S federal law enforcement agencies it i couldn't even imagine the like the hours like so in terms of when you're working is it so say for example at the south africa world cup is that just two and a half months every day well, non-stop work much. pretty much i don't even see the events i happen to see the british game us us uk game in rustenburg other than that i didn't see any events wow yeah so I did when I was at the Confed Cup in 2009. I was embedded with the team, living with the team. So, of course, I went to all their games. But even then, I was, wasn't really watching the game. When, because I, I was on a obviously the Obviously, they're high risk situations that you're dealing with. So, the day, like, say, for example, the 
the build-up to Nelson Mandela arriving in the US. What's that like? Like, so your what's your day looking like in the build-up to that? Like, what when are you ready for? What are you doing? Who are you communicating with? All that sort of stuff. Right. Well, I, I didn't protect Mandela. That was before my time. But any of those kind of events, I mean, it's months of preparation. We're coordinating with local law enforcement and state law enforcement and other agencies uh, and the South African security team. We're scouting out all the sites. We do advances for everywhere he's going to visit. Uh, we're getting our logistics in place, our vehicles, our manpower, who's going to be on the protective detail, the diamond that you would see. Uh, it's a pretty big lift. And our biggest lift every year is the United Nations General Assembly up in New York City, where okay. we're protecting all the foreign ministers who come to the U.S. at that time. It's a major move, uh, operation. It's just, I can't... You obviously see, so for example, with the in the UK, there's the royal weddings, and you see the amount of work that goes into putting mm -hmm. something like that together. And we see it in the like in the UK, that's like once in a blue moon. But you're mm -hmm. dealing with situations like that, by the sounds of it, on a week to week basis. Uh, so at that scale, not week to week, but definitely several times a year. And in, in, in the UN General Assembly every year. See, it's like that. I, th I think even a couple of times a year, that's still the amount of stress that goes into it because if something happens that could be your job on the line. That's always in the back of your head. You're always, mm -hmm. you know, stressing about something like that. So when you're managing these high risk situations and dealing with threats, how do you make good decisions under the, the pressure? You set yourself up for success. And that's kind of what anti-fragility is about, is preparing to prevail. You got to maintain your physical health like a professional athlete. And then those events kick off and that's game time. So we, we would say maintain your operational readiness. Uh, and, 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 and honestly, we don't do this stuff very well um, as far as taking care of our mental health. But sleep and rest to the best of your ability and have plans in place and do your prep work so and then also we train we have the most paramilitary training in the u.s federal government per agent and that's a result of what happened in benghazi we were there i wasn't personally but that was our mission and uh so Something happens, you don't necessarily rise to the occasion. You have to hope that you default to your level of training and that it works. So we train, uh, we've got emergency action plans. Uh, the plans themselves aren't as potent as the act of planning is. And we try to, we try to set things up early as much as we can. So it's just all about the prep and making sure you're as mentally and physically prepared as you can possibly be for any situation. Yeah. And it's hard okay. to do. And we get sick. We have four guys going under mental health observation like I did every month. And we wow. had high divorce rates. We've had four suicides. Uh, we've had four homicides and four suicides. Four guys killed, two by terrorists, well, all four by terrorists. Um, wow. And this is really something that's coming to light in the U.S. I don't know if people know, but we have a suicide epidemic in law enforcement. It's like one of the number one killers of cops. More diets from their own guns than other people's guns. Wow, I that see, I did not did yeah. not know that at all. It's something you. I think as much as we talk about mental health now, it's still something that really flies under the radar. Is the stats behind certain things, mm -hmm. and especially, I think since obviously. 2020 it's now coming out about how officers are feel like how officers are you know a lot of them are now leaving work sick because mm -hmm. they're overworked and especially like for example in the uk i spoke to a doctor who's from the uk and now works over here and i said how come you moved over here he was like well i get paid double to work half the hours and they actually yeah. care about me yeah. 
the the thing is people get lost in government jobs i feel like that then they just they become lost in themselves yeah you, or you lose yourself to that job yeah. you know well i was going to say because the job you're doing you it becomes your all-consuming thoughts so how did that then affect like your family for example uh, it made it hard um but yeah i said my wife's japanese so her culture is a little different i'm not saying she, other people aren't supportive but the man going out and getting the the bacon and the wife holding things together that's kind of what's expected and you look at the japanese households where guys go out and work themselves to death in those corporations that's kind of normal but my wife suffered man a lot of time by herself uh you know we had two little kids uh three-year-old and a newborn and she's going to the mall by herself trying to or trying to grocery shop by herself i mean our families make a lot of uh sacrifices and then part of our job also is to work out of embassies so i was assigned to the u.s embassy in dakar senegal for two and a half years my family was there with me uh my wife would haggle for groceries with the lady with the stand on the side of the road and the mix between French and Wolof. And uh, it's got its pluses. You see the world, but it's also very stressful. I guess when you have your family there, for example, in the embassy, it's not as um, not as stressful as it is, say, when you're on the other side of the world for two and a half months, can probably maybe call once in a blue moon. I guess that is just... You can't, uh, I don't know, it's so hard to try and comprehend what it must be like to try and balance all those things. Right. I mean, it's a lot of it is location by location. Yeah. So obviously if your wife, if you're in an embassy in Paris, and your wife's got friends in the diplomatic community and access to grocery stores and all that, well, then the diplomat life isn't bad. However, if you're in Africa, Different. She's got to go down to the meat market where the guys have like flies flying around and haggle for beef and, or maybe go to the Lebanese owned uh, duty free store and hunt around. That's a lot harder. And then you deal with getting sick from the food. My wife was sick most of the time we were in Senegal. And there I, I probably worked the worst hours when I was at the embassy than anywhere else. Oh, really? Yeah, it burned me out. So. That, this is what I want to get onto now is the, so you were saying, you were assigned to the 2012 Olympics, mm -hmm. but you became ill. So mm -hmm. what happened during that stage where you realized that, that you were becoming ill and you weren't going to be able to carry on the job you were doing? Yeah, I, uh, well, the body keeps score. And what I realized it happens to a lot of us is that our psychological capacity for stress is too much out of whack with our physical capacity we're type a's we like to do hard stuff there's more glory in defeating a, a harder opponent or a tougher assignment uh but i, I liken it like this right if i a high pain tolerance can be good however if you don't feel it at all with your body it's not and a good analogy is my stove, right? You're supposed to feel pain. If I have a hot stove and I touch it, it's supposed to send signals to my brain to get my finger off there before I do damage to my skin. If your pain tolerance is too high and you do that, well, you end up burning your hand and you can mess up the functioning of your hand. Well, the same thing can happen mentally. You know, I, uh, my body chemistry started changing. As you saw in the book, the mind and body are one. Um, you know, it's, if you're manic, it's like you're snorting cocaine. You get a whole bunch of dopamine. You snort cocaine, you get a blast of dopamine. But if your body just starts overproducing dopamine on its own, it's the same way. And then too much is too much. And you have all kinds of behavioral problems. Uh, you start thinking differently. You start having all of these behavioral symptoms. And uh, 
affects your judgment. And once that happened to me, and I went in the hospital, and I went partially blind, I still have these head sensations every night, uh, anxiety. Uh, I spent three years under evaluation not knowing every day whether or not I'd still have a job. Wow. Yeah. And at the time, I had a, what, a four-year-old and a six-year-old. A, a hundred grand upside down on my house. I lived in a very expensive place. And if I couldn't keep my security clearance, I wouldn't find another job in the government. And uh, when I lost my agent status, when they put me on hold, they took away my agent pay. So, you know, special agents aren't necessarily rich. I was going to say, do, do, you th like, do you think there's enough support for people who are going through, say, mental health issues and stuff like that within these agencies? It's growing. My last role in the State Department was to do just that. Right, we can get into how that I lost that contract. But yeah, there's not enough. There's not enough. You have four guys breaking. And we did have something called the peer support group, still do, where people volunteered to learn how to kind of support each other when we're under duress. And while there are four that will end up in the evaluation every month, there are a lot that suffer in silence. Yeah. It was definitely something that I was thinking about when you, because you wrote in the book that the condition you were diagnosed with, it's a condition where 30% of people who are diagnosed commit suicide mm -hmm. and 60% self-medicate with drugs or alcohol. Yeah. And what I wanted to ask you was what made you not become one of those statistics and be the difference? Because it's yeah. so easy to self-medicate or to, you know, if, if you're feeling that low to, to just end it. Yeah, I had a couple of things going for me. Uh, one, a book that I recommend to you and everyone. I've given away probably over 100 copies. It's called Deep Survival, Who Lives, Who Dies, and Why by Lawrence Gonzalez. Okay. And it breaks down the survival, what happens to your mind in high-stress situations, survival situations, and things you can do. So you'll see some of the stuff in my book, Anti-Fragility, originally came from Lawrence Gonzalez's work. And my one heirloom, if I leave nothing else to my descendants, is my beat to hell taped back highlighted dog ear copy of deep survival so in some ways i had started i was becoming anti-fragile from the standpoint of what i was learning another part is i i'm an oldest son so birth order i was the last in the holloway line of men for my generation. And uh, my father had mental health and alcohol, substance abuse problems. So I became a protector at a very young age. So it wasn't just that I liked James Bond, it was I needed to fit in with other people like me who are also protectors. And what that does is it makes me a very duty bound person. And uh, I had a duty to survive because I have people I love depending on me. And I start my day every day in a journal. I say, why do I train? And it is to provide, prepare, and protect those I love. So that was my why, right? Simon Sinek, start with why. Mine is my family, my sense of duty. And I did contemplate uh, taking my own life, but it wasn't to end the suffering or anything. I just didn't know if I'd be able to work. And I had a $700,000 life insurance policy. Wow. It, so, it flashed in my head and then it was like, you know what? That won't work either. Because suicide is generational. My father attempted it. Uh, I didn't want that to happen to my son. So that was the example I wanted to set. It's incredible. Um, and then dealing with, like you said, you went partially blind and you became cognitively impaired. So how did you deal with that? Like knowing that you know, you may not go back to a job because obviously that's putting them more stress on you to try and get better to go back to work. But obviously it's just, that's just becomes a vicious cycle. So how did you deal with that? 
stay positive, stay in the present moment, regulate your emotions, all that stuff that's in my book. That's all the stuff I had to do. Those 10 yeah. principles plus other things and take positive steps. So, you know, I was looking at what I could do in the civilian world, which I knew nothing about the civilian world, never worked in it. Uh, so I started looking at universities and maybe doing something in psychology. I uh, started, and I'm a compulsive problem solver. So I can, I separated out my emotions to the best of my ability. I learned to regulate my fear through the stuff that's in the book, the physical stuff, the thoughts, the mantras, um, counting backwards from a hundred by three, yeah. all those tools, all those practical tools I use that are in the book. That's what got me through it. Set goals for myself. So I said, I was about 230 pounds. I don't know what that is in kilos, uh, 110 kilos. Uh, at the time I'd been lifting a lot of heavy weights, uh, because I was, going to be doing protection, which means kind of like being a rugby player or someone tries to attack my protectee. And I realized I'm going to have to endure a lot of pain and suffering. So I became an endurance athlete and I lost 65 pounds in four months. And in doing so, I had something positive in my life. And I set my goal to pass the uh, U.S. Marine Corps physical fitness test to max it for an 18-year-old. And I was, I think I was 35 at the time. And that was 20 pull-ups, 100 sit-ups, and three-mile run in 18 minutes. That is, yeah, that's next level And I did fitness. it with the exception of, and I added a, a set of 100 push-ups. And, you know, as I'm doing that, as I'm getting closer to that goal, I'm empowering myself. And every time a panic attack comes and I use these techniques, like a martial arts technique, it empowered me and made me even stronger. And then I, I went into, you know, what's the threat? How do I mitigate it? The threat every day is a panic attack every day is getting mentally ill those things in that book are the things i did to mitigate those attacks do you still use them now the, all the, so all the for, time so the book that we're talking about is your new book anti-fragility which you uh you wrote it's uh it's a relatively short book and then quite a good read actually which is 10 principles for life and how to essentially improve yourself with a lot of stoicism thrown in there and that's part of it yeah and what i really liked about the book the two principles which were my favorite were the fifth so the mind and the body are one which you mentioned before mm -hmm. um and the eighth which was no person is an island oh, and what yeah. what i particularly liked about the eighth where you said no person is an island is prisoners are punished in isolation so don't punish yourself which i think too many people do for too long and I've done myself, I know I've done myself, where you isolate yourself because you think you don't want to go out and see people. You think, oh, I can't be bothered. And it gets into this circle of you then don't see people for weeks on end and you're stuck on your own with your own thoughts for too long. Um, yeah, I mean, not all your thoughts are correct. However, if they're the only thoughts you're hearing over and over again, you'll start to think they are. It's not good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that one particularly, it really, it did really resonate with, with me because what I realized as I got older and out of that situation was actually the, a big key to happiness is not just being happy within yourself is being happy because of others around you, seeing mm -hmm. other people's successes, seeing other people, you know, in, progress in life and all that sort of stuff. And by saying you know no person is an island is i feel like it's such a great saying i've never heard it and i love i love that one bit about it no thank you it started off as no man is an island originally i i didn't coin the phrase i, I forgot who said it but it was no man is an island and i just updated it to modern times no person is an island yeah it's a good it's a good one but yeah i think 
the 10 principles that you put in there were really, a lot of them did actually resonate with me with some of, especially with the, some of the mental health struggles I've had in the past. Um, but what made you want to write this book and help people? Uh, different reasons. The big one is I want to get my stuff out there as much as possible. So I'll also be doing a training system and videos and stuff. And you know, the other principle in there that, that there are no atheists in foxholes. You know, I talk about how I would pray and I made this bargain, right? If I get the endurance I need to endure long enough to learn what I was meant to learn, then I'll teach it to other people. And I don't tell people what religion to follow. I don't say drink this Kool-Aid, this flavor of Kool-Aid or whatever. But you know, there's something better at play or there's not. There's nothing yeah. bigger at play. If I'm wrong, it's no big deal. I'm just going to be dust. However, if there is something bigger at play, and I didn't acknowledge it, well, then I screwed myself. So just to logically err on the side of caution, I believe in the divine. Yeah. No, I, I really liked the, the, especially the way it was written. It was very, you know, referring to what a lot of successful people have said and what a lot of successful people has done. Um, but with the title anti-fragility, where did that come from? So I didn't coin the term. It originally came from a guy named Nassim Taleb. He wrote a book called Anti-Fragile. He looked at it mostly from like an economic standpoint, but he did coin that in terms of like the four things. Uh, so if you're fragile, you get hit, you break, you don't come back. You get knocked down, you don't bounce back. And that is the reality for a lot of people. If you're resilient, if you get hit, you're knocked down and you bounce back. But that's not the opposite of fragile because you still get knocked down. You just happen to yeah. come back. If you are robust, you get hit, but nothing changes. However, if you're anti-fragile, the opposite of fragile, when you're hit, you don't go down you grow stronger and that's to me that's the ultimate goal is to learn from learn from the mistakes and the lessons yeah i mean I, I think stupid people don't learn from their mistakes smart people will learn from their own mistakes the geniuses they learn from other people's mistakes <laughs> yeah so the I also wanted to ask, how can people become anti-fragile? And also you use this term a couple of times, uh, meta leaders. So am I right in saying that? Yeah. So how can people become anti-fragile and meta leaders? Okay. Well, anti-fragile, it's in the preparation. You know, opportunity favors prepared. And well, I wrote in the book about the three little pigs, right? Yeah. And how the third piggy lived in a house of bricks. And how when the wolf came, the wolf was a crisis for the first piggy. He was eaten. He was fragile. The wolf was a crisis for the second piggy. He was in a house of wood, lost his house, barely survived. Third piggy was never in any danger because he understood the wolf. He, he radically accepted that the wolf will someday come. So he invested his resources wisely. It's the same thing with us is investing our resources wisely. And that's learning and that's reflecting. And that is taking care of our physical health, our operational readiness, right? Because we don't know when that wolf is going to show up. And it's yeah. building the tools that I talk about in that book, those cognitive tools uh, on how to process a situation. And then we don't rise to the occasion. We default to our level of training. So Hello, are you there? You there? Yeah. yeah. You, just, you cut off a second then. Do you want to just repeat what you said? Uh, I probably cut off right when I was saying you practice right at the end. Day. Yeah, it's... You take that stuff, you take those principles, you nourish your mind 
you guard the gateway to your mind. Um, like I said, you maintain your physical health. Mind and body are one. And uh, man, you know yourself. And you never let an opportunity to train go away. So an opportunity to train, right? Like patience is a good thing. Patience is a virtue. People yeah. will say that, but do they really practice patience? People will say you need to practice patience. Well, here's an exercise to practice patience. Every now and then drive in the slow lane on the highway. Every now and then when you go to the grocery store, pick the longest line and sit there and wait to go through the line and be patient. And find ways to be patient by being in the present moment, by quiet down the mind chatter, by observing your environment. It's the same thing. These principles are all things to practice and things to invest your time in. What's the importance of patience for people? Because we live in a fast paced world where we need everything at a click of our fingers. So why do we need patience? I don't know if we need everything at the click of our fingers. I, I think, think a lot of people to, do, or I they, they of, develop themselves to be that way. Yeah. And I think it hurts them because they become reactionary versus responsive. Good decisions come from some reflection. Now, most people are bouncing from shiny object to shiny object. They're not even alive. They're not awake. It's just stimulus reaction, stimulus reaction. But if you slow yourself down, it's better for your physical health. It's better for your mental health. But you'll also see a lot more than other people. You'll be more observant. And you'll have the time to choose your response, which means you have more self-mastery and control. And patience also is just, you're going to be in situations that you want them over so quickly. And if your mind chatter goes and you start charging your body, you're thinking one thing and then you get your fight or flight trigger, well, now you're suffering. It's good to, it's good to sometimes have that moment of silence through, through situations which give us a, an opportunity to practice patience because it lets us acknowledge how we feel and how, you know, where we are in a situation rather than just constantly being on the go, on the go, on the go, and then eventually hit and burn out. I think it's good to just have like that two to five minutes sometimes in a day where you can just sit and be with yeah. thoughts. I mean, you look at those two systems of thinking, right, that I write about. System one being your fast thinking, system two being your slow thinking. And Daniel Kahneman, the man who coined that along with uh, his best friend, they got the Nobel Peace Prize for that, or the Nobel Prize. It's the idea you're going to make better decisions with a slower mind. Yeah. And I, I write that in the book. I say, if I am running really fast and I catch my toe on something, inertia will send me flying out of control. However, if I'm not going so fast, I'm chill, I'm cool. One, I may see the thing I'd slip on in the first place. Or even if I do, I'm not going to go flying. I'll be able to self-correct. And I wrote about in the book, you know, I learned, first learned to shoot a pistol from a Delta Force operator, which I guess is like the top of the Aussie SAS or something. How do you name it? I'm sure you know who Delta Force is. Yeah. And his, his thing to me was slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Yeah, it's the, this use of Newton's first law of motion is one that I really like because being from sort of a science background, it's like, I was like, yeah, it makes, it makes so much sense that sometimes we do have to, as much as sometimes we want to get the most out of everything. So the more we put in, the more we get out. Sometimes it's good to be slower and, you know, not push the boundaries of what we think is possible sometimes. But I want to move on to talking about the body and the mind of one, mm -hmm. because for me, physical fitness and uh, physical health is massive. Like I'm from a sports science background. I, you know, studied strength and conditioning. So I've worked with athletes and things like that. So the, I know how important the physical is. And for me, I know how that affects my mental health. So for you, for someone who's been in a high stress job for so many years, how important was having your physical health in order? 
getting my physical health in order after I got sick was crucial. It was crucial. I mean, I had some brain damage. And uh, have you ever read Spark by John Ratty? No. It's a great book. is a science of exercise in your brain. One of the things he talks about is, for instance, aerobic exercise, repetitive aerobic exercise, actually helps produce something called GABA nutric acid, butyric acid, uh, no, gamma butyric acid, GABA, which is like miracle growth for your brain. It actually makes your physical brain healthier. It makes you smarter. So I had to deal with repairing my brain. And like I said, endurance running, endurance sports. So I ran a lot so that I could get that miracle growth for my brain. Um, mind and body are connected, what you consume, right? And how it shows up in your behavior. And the best example of that is something like alcohol. Alcohol is a physical substance I bring into my body that causes a physiological change that we know will lead to a psychological change of lowering of inhibitions or aggression or any number of things. Right? Yeah. That's really the example to me of mind and body being one, like very tangible. So your physical state is going to affect your mental state and vice versa. You yeah. can deteriorate, right? If your body is constantly in fight or flight because you're ruminating on some imaginary threat, it's going to weaken you physically. Yeah, I 100% agree with that, which is a lot of people, I don't know what it's like in the US, but in the UK, a lot of people get into a thing of binge drinking where they just go out Friday, Saturday nights and hungover Sunday. And they wonder why they feel so shit come Monday. And it's like, you don't even understand the sort of the metabolic changes you're causing, the physiological changes, all these different things that are happening in the body that you're completely unaware of. And you're feeding it every single week, which is just causing this gradual lowering of inhibitions and yeah. uh, mental health. Yeah, totally. I'm not saying I'm a teetotaler. I do enjoy a beer every now and then. Not beer as much anymore. I find it heavy. Uh, but yeah, I like a drink in moderation. Mm -hmm. But when I got sick, knowing the risk of alcoholism and substance abuse for someone in my condition, and I was sitting in my doctor's office and I saw a poster on the wall that says this is affecting your brain on alcohol. I didn't take a drop of alcohol for seven years. Wow. I didn't take a drop until I've been quite well. And I was actually on a real vacation in Barcelona, Spain. I sat down and had my first beer in seven years. Was it scary to do that? Was it scary to, because obviously you've created a boundary there where what? alcohol is bad in your brain. So was it scary to go, actually, you know what? I will, I will break this and I will drink. Yeah. Well, I mean, I said in the book, the way in which I broke is physical. My body's, I have to regulate my brain chemistry with medication, right? Yeah. And I, I liken it to my, just taking my vitamins. Some people have to take vitamin D or more iron supplements. I have to take something to tamp down dopamine or some of its serotonin, what have you. And I have to be very careful when drinking alcohol with that medication. So I'm actually quite scientific. Like I won't, I won't drink alcohol within three hours to four hours of taking my medication. Yeah. But well, I had to trust myself. And I, I did drink a little bit of beer in Spain, but I was also wasn't under any stress. It was like the best time of my life. Now it's, it's good to know that like, it's good to hear a story where actually people can use alcohol, not in a negative way way you know where it has been deemed a negative in the past like right. for example people who've had problems with alcoholism they yeah. can never go back to it they can right. you can you always hear like people will quit alcohol and probably never ever go back to drinking alcohol and if they do yeah, it, it's a problem. really negative thing yeah and so to hear that someone has you know they quit it for seven years and they've gone back to it and it's not been a negative thing is quite you know it's quite positive quite reassuring thank you yeah i am um, Another thing is I'm a very disciplined person. I like discipline and I like self-control. 
self-mastery. I don't like to give up my self-control very easily. Mm. As Jocko yeah, Willis says, discipline is freedom. Discipline is freedom, yeah. Mm. It's, it's definitely one of those things where not too many people are disciplined enough to experience that freedom, yeah. in my opinion. Well, like I said earlier, most people are bouncing from shiny object to shiny object. Yeah, I agree. Um, so a couple more questions for you. If people want to be successful, what are three important steps to take? Because you are obviously a performance coach. You're a coach now, Arrow Performance. So you coach people through businesses, through life, tasks, yeah. whatever it may be. So what are three tips to be successful? Okay, let's start here. Studies have shown that emotional intelligence is more important than IQ. All right. So let's break down emotional intelligence into its four parts. Self-awareness of my physical and mental state. So let's not make it esoteric self-awareness. Let's make it real. I'm aware of the thoughts I'm having. I'm aware of what's going on in my body and my operational readiness. Self-awareness. The ability to regulate your emotions. So I know when I'm high because I'm self-aware, or I know when I'm low, and I know how to get myself back to equilibrium, emotional. And I don't get angry and do something stupid. Empathy. I can see the state of someone else, and then the ability to interact with someone in such a way that you can calm them or put them in a conducive state, emotional, mental state, to actually do what you want them to do. So emotional intelligence, self-awareness, self-regulation, empathy, and really your communication, verbal and nonverbal. Okay. And so how do we turn adversities into opportunities? First, you got to reframe it. Right. So I immediately said, I am the hero in the story that is my life. That's the first principle, right? You are the hero of your story. So that immediately gave me a relationship to the things that were against me is these are the obstacles that take me on that journey that make me smarter. And I developed gratitude for them. And through the obstacle, Marcus Aurelius, the obstacle in the way is the way. So right there, you take away some of the negativity. So that's one way to deal with that, turn it to your advantage. Another, and I talk about the financial side of it, right? Your adversity is a change in the status quo. You may be dealing with it by yourself, or it may be the whole world with COVID. Changing the status quo, Darwin, right? You like science. You adapt. Yeah. Right? Survival of the fittest, not the strongest, not the smartest, not the fastest. It's the most adapted, it's the fastest and most adapted to the changes of their environment. So you adapt. And if you adapt faster and more appropriately than your competition, well, you're the fittest. And you make a lot more rabbits. Because when the snows came, you became a white rabbit, and all the brown rabbits got eaten. So yeah, adaptation. I like, I like it. Another question I wanted to ask was, so you obviously transitioned from the you know, working for the Department of State for nearly 20 years mm -hmm. to civilian life, to civilian right. jobs. So for anyone who's in a situation where they may be in the Army, the Navy, the RAF, whatever it is, where they're in a job where it's set, they're away for specific periods of time, you know, they think that is all to life, all of a sudden there may be a change and they have to go to civilian life. Mm -hmm. How did you cope with that change and what did you do to mitigate any risks that came with it patience the value of patience uh 
and adaptability again. But like what I tell people is when I, I not only did I leave the State Department, I left the East Coast and moved to Texas, which is a culture all into itself, uh, which I love. And my descendant, my ancestors lived here. But uh, when I first got here in the civilian world and not doing a life or death job and all that, I felt like Tarzan when he first went to London and had to wear shoes. And I'm interacting with civilians and they don't think as fast and they're not used to making serious decisions and they tend to bounce from shiny object to shiny object. And I had to get used to it and I had to radically accept that's the way it is in the civilian world. So I can't get frustrated with other people because they're going a lot slower than I am. Did you ever contemplate? Did you ever contemplate going back to a job like that? No. Well, every now and then, I mean, I, I could do work as a contractor, like Blackwater or something like that, or I have friends who are contractors for CIA, but I don't want that life. I'm in a new chapter of my life. It's going to be a lot more, it's going to be better for my family. Uh, my goals are different. And, uh, Financially, it's going to be a lot more lucrative than what I was doing before. So, so all all the best things are yeah. coming to you now. Now yeah. that you've left, it's it's yeah. interesting though because it, you would think working for the government is the more secure, safe role, but everything you've described about the role you were doing is completely the opposite. In the way that you weren't sure if you'd have a job to go back to you know it was life or death situations it was high risk you're away all the time whereas now you're home you know you probably stay more stable in terms of the, the your family life and everything that's going on mm -hmm. it's, it's really interesting to hear that actually it's the complete opposite to what well, probably it's, most it's, people think yeah now let me give you the wrong impression government jobs are very stable mm. one of the things you say is well, for us, it's, you know, the eagle, the U.S. eagle, right, will lay an egg in your nest every two weeks. You're going to get paid. You're not going to get fired if you stay a civil servant. And generally, unless you're in a situation like I was where I just couldn't stay in the job I was in and they found a different job for me, now, which is actually more stressful in a cubicle. Uh, but yeah, this I didn't have money stressors so much. On the other hand, I had no opportunity to make more money, to do more. People told me where to sit, where to live. And now I am the master of my own fate. And I'm a time billionaire. Temporal billionaire. Want to be. That's what, what we all want to be. Yeah, I'm a free man. And you know, when I tell people a lot of times, you've got one life that we know of one time around. And it sounds like a long time until you start breaking it down into summer vacation. And I just turned 49. Average male life expectancy in the U.S. is 78. So what does that give me? 28 20. more summer vacations. That's it. Yeah. I will rotate around the sun a finite amount of time. And I don't want to spend it giving away my personal freedom or my personal power. And there's a lot of stuff I want to do. Yes, yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a good way to look at things. And I've got one final question for you, which is how would you like to be remembered? As smarter than Elon Musk. No, uh, I don't. Yeah. The people who I really want to remember me are my descendants. It's a big deal for me because I passed this condition down. And I wrote this book for them. You asked earlier why I wrote the book. And part is it's a guideline for them if they face what I face. And I want them to look back and say, my great great grandfather was this great man. And if he can overcome all that he overcame and become a millionaire, whatever, well, then whatever I'm dealing with, I've got an advantage because I carry his DNA. And I want to give that kid hope because hope can save your life.
And if I can do that with other people as well, if I can inspire them, if I can give them tools to make them have a better life, even better. But I'm not trying to get famous. I don't expect the whole world to remember me. But there are some people I really do want to know who I was and what I've done. And that's my descendants and my friends. That's great. So where can people find you? How can they support you? Where can they buy your book, for example? Uh, my book is an ebook right now. And it's on my website. Uh, just Google Arrow Coaching LLC, as in bow and arrow. Uh, or the URL is arrowperformancecoach.com. And if you don't see it there, it's because I've changed my URL because I'm getting all my stuff redesigned, my website and everything. And in which case, it'll just be arrowcoachingllc.com. Okay. I'll put a link in the description anyway. And then where can they find you on LinkedIn? Or I'm on LinkedIn. Just Google Ron Holloway anti-fragility or in the LinkedIn search. Uh, I think I'm under Ron Holloway. Facebook. Uh, Arrow coaching, Instagram, I'm coach underscore Ron underscore Holloway. And I put stuff on there, content on there. Cool. Those are the big ones. Twitter, I don't do much with Twitter. Okay. Well, appreciate you coming on. It's been a great episode. And yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to episode nine of the Quantum Podcast. I really appreciate the audience that keeps coming back week by week and the new audience who is coming in with every episode. I also want to thank Ron for his time. It was a really great conversation. I thought he shared some great insights into his career and some lessons that he's learned from his time of becoming ill and also in the diplomatic security service. So please remember to subscribe and a new episode will be available every Monday as well as clips available every Thursday at 6 a.m. GMT and 5 p.m. Australian Eastern time. Thank you.